There we go. I knew. So, was a great story about inviting the real one or the other of the uh, the uh, etiquette features uh, exemplified in a story by somebody in your group. Can you tell a story that somebody else told in your group about inviting the real? I have to say, this is like my favorite part. I I love this whole thing about inviting the real. (laughs) Where has inviting the real gone on in your knowing? This is not your cue to be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) We were just talking about the journey to identity. Knowing who you are and... Probably only 10 years ago, my mother and cousin were saying one of our relatives had dark skin. And yet, there was every sense in the family that it was British and all the rest of it. But I started following the lead of that clue. Yeah. And it just led to clue up and clue up and clue. And I now know my great-great-grandmother was the daughter of a Raja, a Muslim Raja in Kashmir. Oh, my. And I knew there was more to my story. Yeah. And to uncover that reality means I almost feel at home in my own skin for the first time. That's lovely. So, so how were you? Yeah. So uh, you uh, committed yourself to do what it took to follow the little glimmer of uh, suspicion you had that <laughs> there might be something and, you know, to I this. I a narrative I shared with the whole family and some of the other family members picked up on what I was doing even more than I had. Oh, so fun. So and it's contagious. So it was a collaborative effort and a healing for our family. Ah. So I look at my mother's side of the family and I'd say, there's more to this story. Look yeah. at the way my uncle behaved. There's more to this story. <laughs> 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 and because of uh, British India, racism, discrimination, they disavow their Indian past. It's just too dangerous to say you had an Indian past. Yeah. But we were able to bring it into the light. And yeah. now my mother even smiles when I talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good story. Thanks for telling that. <laughs> Inviting the real. That contagion, by the way, I, another aphorism I've coined is Semper Transformanda. So, so once you've kind of gotten into this dynamo of transformation, it's contagious. So that's what was going on when more people were getting on board with your yeah. inviting the real. Yeah. Other stories? Yeah. I think we talked a lot about um, being open to being changed yeah. by what you know and what you learn. And that's a lot of our experience with, with people and knowing and learning about people how some people, that, that can seem a little bit over, overwhelming mm. if you're constantly going into conversations with an openness to being changed yourself, but that that's the reality of life, that we, we continue yeah. to change and we continue to change through those interactions and to embrace that and asking ourselves the question, are we genuinely willing right. to be changed as we learn and as we know yeah. this person or about this thing or this organisation? That's great. And that leads me to add, uh, there, there is a kind of a corollary that you will choose not to be changed by everything or 
choose not to be open to everything because if this is covenantal, you've got to choose against something to choose for something else, like in a marriage, right? Um, and oh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Uh, if you are dealing with somebody who's got a history of being abused, um, there's there's a, a right not being open to some things that needs to be lived out as long as um, healing is having to be undergone. I think you all know what I'm talking about. So there's there's things I know about myself that mean that there's certain things I, I can't I can't be open to. Right? So and so seeing this as a covenantal knowing I think gets at that. But if if you're gonna invite the real, right? So there's gonna have to be a willingness to be changed with regard to that. But covenant is involved there too. So yeah. John. Esther, how many people do you know as friends? <laughs> Why don't you answer that? <laughs> Uh, like close, close? Friends. Oh, I have. I think I have lots of friends. Okay, so... But how many people l- actually listen to me? That Now that would be... What? Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> it requires real friendship. Uh, so there's this line of, of uh, wisdom that we were just discussing about, you know, what is, what is the na- maximum number of friends you can right. have? And uh, to be really um, inviting... The real with yeah. people is is our ability to be in real relationship limited by our, our sticking with the yay words. If we live out of the Western epistemology, does that uh, impact the way that we can have friends? And is that telling us how to be friends and how to have friends and how to service friendships and limiting our ability to be open to others? Right. So I live in the eastern suburbs. I can't be friends with bogans, obviously, because they're beyond me. Right? I am a bogan, by the way. Sorry. You might have noticed. Yes, well, I, I think that there's nothing in the way of openness anywhere in the modernist model. I mean, it's all passive information collecting. Right, so friendship doesn't even come into knowing there. Friendship would be on a pedal. So I have a limit to how much information I can take in. Therefore, I can only have this many friends. But actually, this afternoon at lunch, I was invited to a table and I became friends with people I never met. But they're beyond my limit, so I had to cross them off. What, what, what exactly are you saying, John? <laughs> I'm asking the question of epistemology limits our ability to be open to the other and uh, sets, because of the way that we engage in friendships, does that cause us to have a natural limitation to, the, to our ability to be open to people who stretch us, to invite us into another real? Well, one thing I would say is uh, I mentioned that I think perichoresis is the dynamic of the real. Well, I, I think the dynamic of modernity is us-them and one-many, and it's oppositional. It's oppositional. So what you need for to have perichoresis is a relationality that enhances individuality that doesn't 
decrease or diminish individuality. So if you've got a one many of opposition, as you know, as you get bigger, I have to get less somehow, or I get lost in the many and I, I lose my identity. But with perichoresis, as with a good dance, uh, the dance showcases each partner, and so the partner gives sacrificially, and the other partner becomes more. So it's it's relationality that feeds and grows the particularity, and that's a good friendship, and that's a good church, and that's a good uh, football team. Marriage. Marriage, all that, yeah. Uh, I'm just going to what you, what you say. Is there an element, it reminds me of the show that was on the ABC recently where we talked about the close proximity of five very close friends and the next level of 15 and it goes up to 150. Um, are you looking at friendship and in this context the frequency of communication and the depth of communication? Because I was thinking if that's the case then we're defining this sort of real, this sort of friendship by proximity. But there may be people that have come in and then go out away. We might see them very frequently. But the friendship is still there. Right. Me and Australia. Then we Australia. come back to that person and, and become strictly just as real 10 years later having not seen them. So I... Yeah, so perhaps the question, how many, is a misleading question. Well, and and I, I suspect or maybe propose that Western uh, epistemology is causing us to ask how many. Mm. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, you know, the way you present and the congruity of your message with your manner suggests that we could all be your friends yep. just because you have invited us into that space. Here, here. Thank you. One more comment. Uh, just a comment, I think. Yes, uh, sign up form in the back if you want. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a comment to build on what you were saying, John. How many? You know, because you, you're going to get cognitive overload, like how many phone calls am I going to keep going and how many, how many relationships can I sustain? It becomes a burden fairly quickly because within the limits of time and space, the number of people who fit into that has got to be finite. You just can't you know, handle enough conversations. If you turn the word friend into a verb, friending, I've had the experience of meeting someone, uh, perhaps only talking to them for an hour, but going to a, a level of depth. We, can't, we never meet again, but there was something precious that happened because of the way that we both manage that conversation and therefore they might not fit into that group I'd call my friends, but I can, I'm befriending and being befriended. I have that opportunity all throughout life. But you just point B and you don't have to befriend or unfriend. You can open the possibility of wonder and not knowing when your next connection will be or yeah. when someone will bring Esther to Australia so that she can yeah, I, I just embrace story against myself. Explain what I'm talking about. A person wanted to see me back when I was uh, still uh, with my company, Second Road. They, wa they wanted to see me. I, I, I can't remember who they were. But I do know I had a negative stereotype of that person. I thought they'll be dull and not nearly as smart as me. And uh, so um, I, at least my only saving grace was I have enough self-conscious to know Tony, you're being a bit asshole here, like you've just got to get over this stereotype. It's so, a biblical word. It's a biblical word. It's in Zechariah 14, right, 28. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, so what I did was we, we talked and I knew I was playing a game in the talking like watching my watch to see how quickly I could end this conversation. And then I 
I caught myself and thought, come on, grow up. So I said, look, whatever his name was, we don't know each other. I don't know who you are, you don't know who I am. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and your story? And the conversation went to another level. He started talking about himself and I found to my horror that my stereotypes were wrong. He was actually interesting, he's possibly smarter than me. And um, it just went to a depth by opening up. And that's, now I never met him again. But so there's an intimacy, yeah. Yeah, a different level of intimacy. I'm gonna, uh, go ahead and then So, so, so uh, all of that conversation reminds me of what happens in the counseling room week after week after week in which there are two learners, two knowers. Mutual. And it is intimate, but not necessarily friendship. Yeah, well said. That's a good point. That's a point. And also what comes to mind, Tony, is, um, you know, in business, uh, you want a perichoretic-sized group. And that might not be an infinite number. It might be more like, oh, 7 to 15 in your company, you know, and then maybe what you want is a different company. That's another thing, I, you know. So an, a jazz ensemble <laughs> can't be all that big, right, so if they're going to improvise. One, one of the lessons of uh, creativity, because at the moment I am uh, involved with a technology startup, and advice was given to me because we're hiring high-tech software developers. And the advice I got was hire two, not 20 and we hired two, two who are really smart and already know each other. And we hired two uh, as, as a team because the minute you've got 20, there's an overhead of organising all of those. The volume doesn't translate through into relationships and the work productivity just, you think 20 will be 10 times more productive than two. It's actually almost the other way around hmm. because of the quality and the depth of the conversation. Yeah, interesting. We must move on. Uh, so I inviting the real is my favorite part, but this is my my new love, and and this has got me just dancing on along the ceiling. I'm so excited about this, and I'm halfway, only halfway articulate about it. But um, I want to talk to you about uh, that. There's actually something that happens before we invite the real, and that's that the real was inviting us first, <laughs> and uh, the real's posture is. Welcome. And uh, this might be the hardest thing that you had to believe <laughs> today. But I, I, the book I'm writing now, which I'm calling Doorway to Artistry, Robin Parry had this great idea that I should write a series and, and call it Doorways. So first one's on artistry. I'm calling it Doorway to Artistry for now. And that's my front door, by the way. Um, anyway, uh, the idea is that, that the posture of the real is hospitable welcome to me first, okay? So I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I want to talk to you about my new coined phrase, a metaphysics of childhood, and then uh, my idea that things are everyday jewels of the real. This is all about the real inviting. So inviting the real, actually what I'm trying to do now is context and to say all this inviting the real is actually reciprocating politely to the hospitable welcome that the real has has uh, extended to us first. That's my idea of um, 
the real inviting or of welcome. So David Schindler, I said he's my favorite. I'm a fangirl. This is what he writes about metaphysics. He says it's our basic attitude, our disposition toward the world and everything in it, the way we interact with the various things we encounter in our day-to-day living, and indeed, in a subtle but profound way, the quality of our experience of absolutely anything and everything. Well, you might might be thinking, well, I thought I had an idea of metaphysics, and it was really, really, really abstract and dusty and not for me. Well, this sounds live and just at the heart of who you are, and I think that's very, very cool because there's this dance, (laughs) right? So, oops. Um, This is another favorite juicy quote of mine. Uh, Schindler did his dissertation on Hans Urs von Balthasar. He's a Swiss theologian whose idea of a trilogy is 17 volumes. And he's, so he's written prolifically, and uh, it's amazing, amazing stuff. And uh, he says, the, the soul, that means the real you, the soul's fundamental relation to the world is one of affirmation and joy in being. Affirmation is a response of yes. And one philosopher I've read defines joy as openness to the real. So one thing that I love about this quote is it's saying what Schindler is saying in that uh, it's saying that you have a fundamental philosophical orientation to the real, uh, just a deep level philosophical posture with regard to the real beyond where you are. And as humans, not as my dog, but as humans, you actually have the option of saying yes or no to it. So you could have an affirmation of the real. You could also be living out a no to the real. And if you think about this, you might think of some people who are are living a no to reality, shutting it out. Um, You might know the term acedia, one of the seven deadly sins, which Joseph Pieper defines as a refusal to consent to the real. When I saw the the Batman movie that was filmed in Pittsburgh with the Joker, the Joker is living a no to reality. And he's totally disconnected from the real. But uh, I think I was living a no, not not that this was my intention, when I was 13 and I was asking those questions. So I think the skeptical posture can, can be a no to the real. I certainly distrusted it. Remember one time after Little Manual came out and I was reading it for a class and I realized that in it I had written that, uh, something about trusting reality and I went, oh, I said that. I said that. Is that going to be safe or is reality going to come get me? So you see that's not exactly welcome. <laughs> that's not a, exactly a sense of, of uh, reality being welcome. So a yes or a no. And I propose that modernity is one big no to the real. So if you're going to disconnect, disengage from the world, so it doesn't even matter what the world is and that you can quantify it and, and do whatever you want in it for the sake of human mastery and control, <laughs> right? Um, then 
that's a disconnection, a no to reality. And so what I'm saying is we need a fundamental orientation to the real of a yes. And I would like to propose that unless things go wrong, and lots of things do go wrong, that's the posture that you're born into. So Balthazar writes about the mother and the child, and he says, the little child awakens to self-consciousness through being addressed by the love of his mother. And he says, in that rapturous gaze, the entire paradise of reality unfolds and stands there as an incomprehensible miracle. And Schindler argues from that, that in that moment, it's not like you were given, you were born with philosophical preconditions. No, all the philosophical conditions you need are forged in the mother's smile. And so at, from birth, your fundamental relationship to the world is one of affirmation and joy. And then again, all you need to do is think of the last parent and baby you saw interacting, like on Mark's slide. <laughs> okay. Um, now, lots of things go wrong. Somebody pointed out to me that Descartes' mother died when, she, when he was young. How might modernity be different if that had not happened, right? Um, our whole lives can be a fabric of the brokennesses that have stemmed from our childhood, and we can spend our adulthood trying to get over that. I remember my... 85-year-old aunt telling me about her childhood, right? So, but what we've got is philosophy being forged in the gaze of the loving other. So the real's first welcome is your mother's. By the way, you wouldn't be sitting here at a conference for gospel conversations if somebody had not smiled rapturously at you, and that includes your mother. So that's kind of documented. A personal other, having been looking for you, preceding you, now freely, generously, rapturously welcomes you specifically by name. This is intimately interpersoned. This is encounter. It's a hospitable welcome. Welcome to your world, my world. Now, the mother doesn't let herself be absorbed by the child, although mothers often feel that they're being absorbed. But there is a what um, uh, Schindler calls a mutually abiding otherness of the personal other. Free regard, but not surrender. Okay? And this grants really the baby, all the baby needs for that first smile. And that first smile is magical. My granddaughter... Magdalene smiled at me when she was nine days old. It was just absolutely incredible. So this gives us a fundamental structure of the real. Schindler writes that for this reason, from the beginning, a beginning that is never more to be left behind, the real has a personal face, and the personal always has an ontological or metaphysical depth. This is the seed beginning of what I call communion with the world. That's baby star. She's my firstborn. She's the one that really kind of, you know, transformed me into to being a mother. You can see she hasn't smiled there yet. She's, she's seriously contemplating me. 
Um, so it's kind of interesting to think about the mother-child relationship and contrast that with modernity's isolated imperial self and meaningless denuded fragments. That would be the relationship of the self to the world. That is so uh, trimmed down, denuded into little bits, and there's no connection there at all. Uh, What we've got instead of that is composure in the richest, most focused inner personhood from the outset. And by the way, in this... uh, essay, Movement Toward God, that Baltazar writes, he's doing an apologetic or a natural theology, and and what he says in there is um, Christianity alone fulfills the promise of the mother's smile. And think about this. Every single thinking human in the world is there because of the mother's smile. So they've all had a little witness bearing to the promise of Christianity. Pretty neat, I think. So now this starts to expand, you know, this fundamental orientation starts to expand into uh, what I'm calling a metaphysics of childhood, which is that somehow naturally in in the context of your mother and what I'm calling, uh, you know, mother, me, and other near things, things that are nearby, uh, this starts to be the metaphysics of childhood. Yes, she's a thing. I mean, she's a person, but she's also a thing. And you're a person, and you're also a thing. She's kind of like the paradigmatic thing. But then there start to be other things, too. Your siblings, the dog, um, your stuffed animals, um, that sort of a thing. And I'm going to interrupt to say happy birthday to Stacy, my second born. I'm so proud to have her with me. Uh, I never get to be with her on her birthday, so it's really nice to to have her with me. And um, she didn't make me a mother, but I want to tell you, because of what I went through with Star, when Stacy came out, I was blissful, and I set that baby up on my knees and took picture after picture. And uh, I'm just also very grateful to you for being along with me on this. I don't, I, Stacy's my social manager kind of a person now, social media person, and uh, she has uh, indebted me to her on every turn, every day of this trip. So, so uh, all right, that's over. <laughs> no, but uh, so then going back to the mother and me and near things, I found when I looked back, it just has, and this has just occurred to me in the last uh, months that... Um, the skepticism was adolescent onset. I used to say I was a baby skeptic, but I was an exuberant baby, right? And I, I loved things. And, um, I, you know, I had a, an Ellie, an elephant that I just absolutely adored. But I loved things around the city, too. And in, in, uh, if you're from Philadelphia, uh, everybody knows Billy Penn. That's William Penn, who's um, a top city hall. And I loved him. And I loved lots of things in in my world. So growing out of this fundamental philosophical yes in a metaphysics of childhood is a dynamic of happy personal interchange with things. I'm capitalizing things just to make you notice it. To these, our natural first response is an astonished hello. It It is you. It is good that you exist. So that's the metaphysics of childhood. And I do love things. I love seashells and other things. 
and I would like to suggest that there's things that you love too. And when I say of I love things, I'm thinking of the Baltasar line. The soul's fundamental relation to the world is affirmation and joy in being. So, um, yes, to have seen and been given some of the Australian seashells is really maybe, you know, I can go home now. I've got, I've got a seashell. So. <laughs> so I do love seashells. But the idea of things is actually scandalous in modernity. Because things limit my free choice. Uh, things can fly in the face of mastery, manipulability, and commodifiability. Uh, what we're about is mass production. Okay? And, uh, you know, things, seriously? Like, uh, there isn't really a real world. It's just stuff for us to use. So, uh, for modernity, things are a scandalous uh, intrusion on the way we want to see the world. The real world we want to see as reductive, meaningless bits. Not you personally, but the, the milieu. I also think the primacy of things can sound scandalous from a spiritual point of view. This sounds so unspiritual because that's the world, okay? And it sounds like materialist greed and consumerism and covetousness and even idolatry. All those are sins. So how can you say uh, you love things? And uh, for lots of us evangelicals, what is metaphysics anyway? Now, Michael Hanby has argued in his brief history of the cosmos that things are actually at home in a Christian doctrine of creation. And um, a positive account of things was something that the Greeks were missing. So a positive account of the world's relatedness to God in such a way that the world could stand off from God and be itself and be free not to be possessed by God. So, um, so that things could have intrinsic value and be particular. And I'm not at all denying that they're created. It's just that really the Trinity needs to have, be having its own party so I can breathe. It's kind of how it goes. <laughs> okay? And things are uh, at home in the Christian doctrine of creation as opposed to modernity's denial of things. Now, I love this phrase. Please tell Sarah, Tony, that uh, finally Capon made an, appoint, uh, an appearance in my s slides. He writes in this, in this incredible book about cooking. He's an Episcopal priest writing about cooking. He says, one real thing is closer to God than all the diagrams of the world. And he writes, man's real work is to look at the things of the world and to love them for what they are. That is, after all, what God does, and man was not made in God's image for nothing. The fruits of his attention can be seen in all the arts, crafts, and sciences, and he writes, the world needs all the lovers, meaning the amateurs, it can get. Uh, he writes as an amateur cook, <laughs> and so he's making a pitch for why amateurs are needed. I am two minutes from 345, so I'm going to zoom, just zoom to the end of this because I have too much to say. Uh, this is Schindler. He's arguing that beauty is the manifestation of the real. It shows up and says, here I am. 
just so you know that's here. Things, and this is a classical Christian metaphysics, things are lively. Baltazar writes, there's no such thing as a passive object. They disclose themselves, they show themselves, they give themselves, they say themselves. Beauty, goodness, and truth are three of the transcendentals, and they're meant for you. So they're coming after you. That's my night blooming series. So more to say. I'm going to skip over that. Uh, And I would like to say you can actually let things reattune you to the real's welcome. So here are new beauties for Stacy and me. And they can reattune you to affirmation and joy in the real. Those are both unbelievably exquisite, and they're saying, welcome, Esther. Welcome, Esther. Whoop, I had that slide. Oh. All right, so very last thing, uh, I've been re-enthralled with Lord of the Rings, and uh, I have noticed how uh, greetings and partings require the proper etiquette. And uh, so my granddaughters pointed out to me that the dwarves are always at your service. And then the proper reply is, at your service and at the service of your family. Okay, so what I get out of that is this kind of noble courtesy that just infuses the Lord of the Rings. Schindler says, the things of the world have their own noble depths to which they graciously offer us access. That's hospitable welcome. Do you recognize the the piece of silver there? Do you all know this? You probably know it. I had to learn this. I looked it up when I read The Lord of the Rings this time. It's a stirrup cup. And so when everybody's parting uh, down on the plain under uh, uh, Rohan, uh, they drink the stirrup cup. So what that is is a last drink together while the departing people are on horseback. So you see, it's upside down. You have to flip it over, and then you can't set it down. It's meant to be, it's meant to be held. So I guess it gets used in fox hunts also, but uh, it got a mention in, in Lord of the Rings. So I think that what we need to do, and this is just inviting the real, but it's response, cultivate the comportment of noble courtesy toward the other. So it's time for conversations, but there's no conversation because it's 345 in the rest of your life. Is going to be a conversation, I pray. Um, if you're interested in, uh, in hopefully buying a book or subscribing to my newsletter, I did bring my, my uh, uh, business cards with you, and I'd like to give you one because it's like a mini poster with a saying on it. And um, I can't thank you enough. You're all f- intimate friends of some degree or other, and I hope that you're more connected with each other as... Um, a result of this day too. So thank you ever so much.